Welcome to Thinking Like a Region. I'm Dr. Lisa Donovan, a professor at Massachusetts College of Liberal Arts. Our podcast explores the direct connections between arts learning and workforce skills through stories from some of the most interesting voices in Berkshire County, Massachusetts. The Berkshires are a culture-rich area, home to world-class arts and cultural institutions where the skills that the arts naturally cultivate are always on display. By making the value of these skills visible, we can advance the importance of the arts while we think like a region. Come, think with us. In this episode, we'll hear from Ben Lamb, Director of Economic Development at One Berkshire. We'll hear about the role of the arts in economic development in Berkshire County, but also the role of the arts building creative capacity. Ben, welcome to Thinking Like a Region. Thank you. Wonderful to be here. I'd like to start off by asking you a little bit about your background. How did you end up in the Berkshires? Well, that is a long, convoluted story. But the first way that I got here was actually as a student at MCLA. So back in 2003, I began my academic ventures here, and I got my double bachelor's degree in biology and environmental studies with a minor in chemistry from the Massachusetts College of Liberal Arts. That's awesome. And what made you decide to stay or come back after graduating? One of the interesting things about MCLA is after being here for two weeks, I started to refer to the college as home, which was an interesting anomaly. I didn't necessarily expect that. But then when you get close to graduation, everyone thinks that you're supposed to go out in the world and do something elsewhere. So I did that. And for two years and a little bit, I went out and sort of tested the world out, tried to see what I really wanted to do for the long term. And after all of that was said and done, I ended up back here, actually working halftime with our local high school and halftime at the college. And it was just kind of the alignment of the stars at that point. And I realized that I probably could have just stayed here and never left. And so this has definitely been home since 2003. I love hearing that, especially with my connection to MCLA. And now you're the director of economic development at One Berkshire. So talk a little bit about how you ended up in that role in particular. Sure. So I actually came out of higher education. So I had worked at Williams College for eight years prior to my current job at One Berkshire. And really what sort of drove me in this direction was the realization that I had a set of skills that I had developed over the years in various volunteer and board capacities, just passions that I had in terms of creative placemaking and sort of driving economics in the city of North Adams specifically in that way. I appreciated the work in the elected setting. So I was a city councilor at the time too. And there was just all of these kind of convergence of various aspects of my personality that came through. Plus the idea that, you know, in higher education, I was in student life, you're really working with a small region when you're in a college campus in that way. It's a built community in a way. And I really loved all of the moving pieces of that and wanted to see how I could translate that into a larger scene. And so my love for the region, my background, my analytical skill set, and my desire to build networks and bridges really sort of drove me to looking at One Berkshire as an opportunity. And it ended up being the perfect opportunity at the perfect time. You have been one busy guy, and, and I love hearing about how all of your skills have really led you here. Talk a little bit about some of your current projects and work. What are you working on? Yeah, there's a lot. The big one right now is we're actually working with the Economic Development Administration through the federal government doing a technical assistance program where we're doing cohort-based technical assistance for small businesses around the region. And that's been really fun and exciting. We have a really fun project that we actually just announced publicly today where we are actually 
actively working to translate all of our economic development and entrepreneurial resources into Spanish to try to support our immigrant community a bit more because we have a huge and fast-growing immigrant business population here in the region, and we want to make sure that they're as supported as everybody else. But we're doing a lot of work with the digital economy now. So we've been working with the Center on Rural Innovation on really assessing and strategizing how to advance the digital and tech-enabled economy of the Berkshires for over the next five years and really identifying the Berkshires as this rural innovation hub. So that's been taking a lion's share of my time lately. But then there's our Berkshire Blueprint 2.0, which is our regional economic development imperative that we launched in 2019. And that's been something that's been our kind of guiding light in a lot of our work. And that has identified six primary clusters across the region that we really focus in, one of them being the creative economy. And then those really being the scalable, driving economic realms of the Berkshires. And we want to continue to support those and grow them. And so that broad scope piece is really where a lot of the bits and pieces of my day-to-day come into play. It's so interesting to hear how tuned in you are to community engagement and responding to area needs, especially in this rural region. The creative economy as one of the key sectors is where I want to focus next. When you say creative economy, what does that encompass? Mm. And this has been one of those interesting ones that's really hard to define. So the creative economy, we actually incorporate a lot of things in it that you might not expect. So it's certainly the arts, the artists, the performers, the cultural institutions. But then it also includes creative manuals manufacturing. We don't look at businesses as only fitting into one cluster necessarily. So a really great example is uh, Lymphadivas, which is a manufacturer down in the Pittsfield area now in Dalton as well. And they create these compression sleeves that was developed for lymphedema, but the sleeve is a piece of art. It's literally like they have artists and graphic designers on staff that create these sleeves that look like really amazing patterns and designs. It looks like a tattooed sleeve or tie-dyed or whatever you could really imagine. They create these. And so it actually becomes something that people are excited to wear rather than something that they're ashamed to wear. They've applied creativity into a manufacturing and a healthcare realm that hadn't been done prior. And so we consider them part of our creative economy. They're employing people. They're doing really exciting stuff. It includes graphic designers and the work that comes along with that. We really look at this wraparound approach to what could be included in creative economy work. Not like exclusionary, but what can be included. Um, and we find that there's a lot more in there than you might think. Certainly a lot of individual solopreneurs in the arts realm, but also adventures into to that, like I said, healthcare and advanced manufacturing. It's such a good example of how the arts can actually matter across sectors. And we know here in the Berkshires that arts and cultural organizations provide such unique assets for the county. And in fact, they're really one of our core pillars. So when you're working with arts and culture folks in particular, how do you talk with them about creative economy and creative placemaking? Mm. So I think that Those two things that you just said are connected, but also different. So I want to differentiate a little bit there. So when we're working with them around the creative economy, most of our work is very much so how do we support those businesses? How do we support that industry in the way that it needs to be supported? We don't pretend to know everything about everything. If we did, we'd be lying to ourselves and others. So we really try to do a lot more listening than we do talking. And then usually one of our key objectives is how do we connect them with the resources that they need? We have really coined this phrase that we're a connective tissue organization. So we try to really be involved, aware, or at as many tables as possible so that we're able to then fold those into the conversations that we're having with this person, that person, that agency, this organization, so that we can actually help them connect the dots that they might not inherently connect to. So whether that's connecting them directly to a technical assistance offering, or maybe it's to a client, or maybe it's to a collaborator that they might be able to do something together on. 
that's really the core function that we really see, especially through our consultations that we do. We do about 200 of those a year. And a lot of them are folks in the creative economy. And I can say, like, I've connected many of them to a Common Folk Artist Collective or the Artist Impact Council or Assets for Artists or down in South County, there's a really strong 600-member organization that focuses on bringing all those creatives together under their networking opportunity. And so really trying to feather people into the, the area where they're going to get the specific support they need. We can be very broad in our work, but really making sure that that is happening. And then working with what we've identified as our Creative Economy Leadership Roundtable, which really includes presidents and CEOs of many of our major culturals, but then also folks that are part of smaller creative or cultural institutions or individual artists. And just so we have this task force working group that can think about the big picture and then can collectively act on things. Because we're not going to be able to do everything ourselves. And we, you know, there's two people on my staff right now. So to even think that we could do everything that needs to happen everywhere is impossible. Really leveraging those relationships and working with those partners that have an intimate knowledge so that they can then grow their capacity to apply it into the bigger picture. So that's the creative economy piece. On the creative placemaking piece, that's really started as a passion project for me. So I've been a big fan of Strong Towns, which is a, a really incredible organization that really looks at the intimacy of our downtowns and how do we continue to grow vitality without losing the things that have made our community strong over time. I just follow them all the time and read a lot of their stuff. And as I was looking at that, there were organizations in this landscape, Patronicity is one, which is based out of Boston, but does work across the country, that were doing grant programs with the state. So Mass Development has actually been really proactive about this and has been putting a lot of capital forward to support these creative placemaking endeavors. And those take many different forms. In some communities, it's the final step to a restoration of a historic building that's going to become a new center for community XYZ, whatever that might be. In other cases, it's an event, right, where it's basically turning a, a vacant space into something for a, a moment, right, a, a moment to be together. In our case, I've looked at it as I love the idea of creating economic vitality by promoting foot traffic, promoting moments of pause, integrating the arts, history, and the local economic drivers into a, a common kind of space. Through that, I've really worked on identifying those tracks that could be built out with a creative infrastructure. Historic Eagle Street is one of the prime examples as one of the two major projects I've been doing for now better part of six years. We put in some art installations, but we also created a parklet, which was artistically designed and then fabricated locally that goes out in the spring and stays out there all summer long. And it creates a space for people to come together where they can see the great qualities of the space that they're in, but then also stumble across the artistic installations and see how that starts to feed into more of an ecosystem rather than just an installation. And so I think that that's been a really great example. And then another example, which we just finished off back in June of last year, was on Ashland Street, which is kind of a continuation of Eagle Street here in North Adams. If you were just to keep driving, you'd end up on Ashland Street. Much more of a, a fast corridor, but it actually connects the, the college to downtown. There's a, a public housing complex to downtown. There's our senior center on the street. Now our youth teen center is there as well. All of these institutions exist on this single corridor, along with businesses and residents alike. But the walkability, the, the friendliness, the desire to move people through that on foot was lacking, unless it was necessary. And so we really looked at how do we create more bikeability, more pedestrian-friendly components as the city looks at larger infrastructure work to really help inform those efforts as they go ahead. But then also making sure that there was major artistic anchors, right? So we started off with a series of small 
all our installations, which are paintings done by a, a number of community members. And then kind of the capstone moment is this nine-story tall work by Gaia that represents a really interesting historic component of North Adams, which was we had a very uh, high-density Chinese immigrant population that was here in the early 1900s and late 1800s, working on the railroad and working in the shoe factories, kind of the Union Line Crossing era. And one of them happened to be an individual who then moved to Florida and developed the Valencia Orange. And so he is this interesting person that was part of our community for a period of his life and then went on to do these really interesting things. And so this mural celebrates him. It celebrates the women that worked at Sprague, which was a major economic driver and really grew the economy of North Adams over time. And then also looks at our youth, both past and present. So there's actually imagery of the mill children that used to work in the mills before Laws changed, thankfully. And then also just a very large representation of our future in another image of a child. That piece not only celebrates North Adams' history, but then also looks forward to what this area can be. And it is like this beacon on Ashland Street now. So it creates interest and intrigue and people want to stop and look at it or walk there and check it out. So creative placemaking to me is really about how do we inject those pieces that can ideally do both, creating a sense of community, but then also creating economic vitality by getting people stopping at shops, getting new shops to open, getting that market, that flow of commerce to happen organically because people just happen to be present through creative placemaking. That's great. Thank you for distinguishing the difference between those two ideas. It's clear that the arts can really be a critical element in fostering a sense of place and contributing to creative placemaking. I want to focus in on workforce development because I know that that's a key aspect also of your work. And I'm curious, when you think about young people, as you were just talking about, are you thinking about the role of schools and skill building for when students graduate? And are the arts a part of that in some way, shape or form? So I am a firm believer in the liberal arts model of education. I think that that exposure piece to a broad spectrum of opportunities, including the arts, including the creative ventures, is really imperative to people identifying how their brain works, how they are going to operate in society, and helps them to think outside the box. And if we don't think outside the box, then we'll never act outside the box, and we'll never see progress, quite frankly. So I think that the exposure piece is extremely important. And the great thing here is, you know, we do have institutions that actively engage youth either through the school system or independently. Mass Mocha is a prime example of that, where having space specifically for children to engage in the arts, which draws their family in and exposes their family and starts to change the narrative in a community. It creates an appreciation for what these assets can actually mean. So I think that that is absolutely key. I would also say when I mentioned the creative economy, like there's been times where we've had what most people will consider a straight up manufacturer asking if we knew anyone with skill sets of this one particular thing as an example where they're really good at picking out colors and seeing the difference between colors. And so in my mind, that is absolutely someone in the creative sector, right? That's someone who has worked with a palette of color and can differentiate very minute changes in things and see how these patterns are going to work because that manufacturer happened to need a person with that very specific skill set, which is either learned or just something inherent to them to do work on something they were manufacturing that had to have very specific colors. And so to see that kind of interlinking and that high value put on a skill set developed by someone in the creative side of things is interesting. And I think that the more that we're able to get our younger generations, our newer transplants, the folks that are rising up in our community we want to retain, the more we can expose them to that, the more likely they are to develop new skill sets that they can then leverage in whatever their profession might be. That's great. And I think that example is really interesting because you could say, well, it's young people adapt at identifying color, but also observation. And Mm -hmm. so are there other places where you see 
skills that might be developed through arts education or exposure to the arts, as you're saying, that maps to other skills that you hear about being needed in the community or the workforce? So self-awareness and reflection is a big one. And although a lot of employers might not use that specific phrasing, if you dig into the weeds and pull out a thesaurus, that's really what they're looking for, right? They're looking for someone who can represent themselves professionally and understand how that comes across to the, the customer in front of them. And so when you think about folks that are in the creative realm, there's a tendency for them to be able to look at something and reflect on it and process it in a different way and then interpret it and translate it in whatever fashion might be necessary at that moment. I think that that's the particular skill set I hadn't really thought of until recently, but it's something that definitely comes through. The other piece is just sort of a, a cultural awareness piece. And that has become much more pronounced, I would say, in the last two to three years as a demand from employers. That's what they're really looking for. They really want folks that can come into an office culture and contribute and improve it and improve upon it by having a cultural awareness themselves. It's commonly used, the arts and culture, right? Those two words are very often merged together as being sort of under this umbrella of the creative economy. I think that the more folks have that in their back pocket, and then they can obviously continue to grow those skills. But the more they have in their back pocket coming in, that's a huge asset to an employer. That's thousands of dollars of training that they don't have to provide because that person comes in with it. They can just grow upon them um, and ultimately create career track opportunities for those folks rather than it just being another job. So I think that that, again, like that, that cultural competency piece is certainly something that comes through on the creative side. These are great. And are there other skills that maybe you hear about being named as needed in the field, whether they translate or not? back to the arts. Reliability is a huge one. One of the bigger challenges during the pandemic especially is high turnover rates. And this is a national issue, right? This isn't just local. So I'm talking to colleagues in California and out in Wisconsin, and they're having the same problem. They've got folks that come into a job, they're there for 60 days, and they're ghosting. It's sort of its own pandemic beyond the whole mass exodus that everyone's been talking about in the media, people just leaving the workplace or workforce in general. But this particular theme of going through the work of actually getting hired and then just disappearing and not really being able to identify where is that trend coming from? How is that being learned? How is that being identified by the person as the right thing to do? Because it's certainly not something that you would have seen over time. This is a fairly new trend. So that's definitely something that I hear a decent amount. Attention to detail is always a big one. And I think you could say that, again, that relates very well to the creative economy, even though you're not asking me to relate it to it. It does. So that's certainly another one. An ability to work with others, which has become an interesting thing to define during the pandemic, especially with so much remote work. A lot of people that are being hired right now are being hired as remote workers, but with the anticipation that they will end up becoming in person over time. Ultimately, there's probably going to be a huge need for new training and specialized consultation services for like, how do you talk to people that comes out of this pandemic after the fact. We've all learned new ways of being. And I think that that ability to work with others in a positive way and having professional discourse, right, instead of it elevating to the level of a Facebook battle or whatever the case might be, those are certainly skills that need to be relearned, if not learned for the first time by a lot of folks. And I think that that's something that pretty much every workplace is in need of, is a culture of courtesy, at the very least, that is likely something that needs to be trained. And I think all of those skills can actually be linked back to the capacities that are developed through the arts. And talking about arts experiences, you're a creative guy. I know you have been a podcaster of just listening to all the different initiatives you're juggling and designing. You're a gardener, you're a maker. Did you have arts experiences growing up? Pre-college, there was really a kind of a defining moment, quite honestly, where I was a, a science kid and I was an arts kid. 
And I, those two things were very much so equal partners in my, my trajectory. I mean, I sort of fell into that 90s kid challenge of having to pick what I was going to do when I went to college. And so it was a matter of like, okay, so do you go to the thing that's stable? You go into the sciences, you get a scientist job and you do the science thing. Or do you go the whole stereotypical starving artist pitch used to get put out there by guidance counselors? I, I like to think and see that they've changed quite a bit over my lifetime. When you put those two things on the table, most people are going to go for the more reliable way. So I ended up going into the sciences. But when I started at MCLA, interestingly enough, I was a environmental studies major with a creative writing minor. But because of the course load, I ended up pushing the creative writing minor out and going into double major with the, the minor in science. And I think that's just a symptom of courses, the way that they sort of get distributed. I, I still did creative stuff on the side, right? So I was still participating in event programming and marketing and all that stuff. I had a radio show for three years at the college. That was always fun. And that was like my expression of myself without it being the thing that was giving me a grade in class. All that said and done in high school, I was very much so like I was in all the advanced arts classes. And that was like, that's what I loved doing. It just happened to be something that I also got credit for. And then life changed. <laughs> that's great. Just knowing a bit about your work, I see where all of that creativity still comes to bear. Are there specific skills and capacities that you developed through the AP arts classes, the creative writing? And if there are, how do they translate to your work today? So the creative writing especially played into life in general. When I went to MCLA, you have to take these core classes, for instance. And I was in not the, the 101, I forget what the numbering was at the time, but it wasn't the 101 writing course. It was the next level up because I was able to at least get up to that because of high school credits that I had gained. But I basically got booted out of the class because I was essentially too advanced for that class. And it was because of all of that stuff that I had done with creative writing in high school. That was the stuff that I loved. I love playwriting. I love short story writing and all that. And that has really translated into my work now. I'm in a dissertation program right now. If you ask me to pump out 100 pages, I can pump you out 100 pages and it's not garbage. And so that's certainly something that has continued on in my life. And I used to be someone that hand wrote everything. And so my handwriting evolved and I've always been recognized for my handwriting because it just looks good, I guess, ever since fourth grade. And that, again, came with the fact that I loved writing and I was doing a lot of it. I do think that that ability to think creatively in a literary context also allows you to think creatively about the work that you're doing and how to solve problems. And so, yes, sure, my science side, my analytical testing and hypotheses side certainly plays into that too. But being able to see how this player and that player that are on disparate ends of a, a spectrum of what they're doing on a day-to-day -day should be working together on this thing like that very much so comes out of the creative side when you think about the medium you're using and how you want to translate that into what you're trying to present to the public, thinking outside the boundaries of what everyone might expect. There's been stuff that we've done at One Berkshire since I started there that people are like, oh, that makes a lot of sense, but I wouldn't have expected that. Getting into working very heavily with the Berkshire Immigrant Center is a great example of that, right? We've developed this amazing relationship with them that we just continue to grow because that is when we did our study, we identified the immigrant population as the only growing population in Berkshire County at the time. So obviously we want to work with them, but to the rest of the world, that didn't necessarily make a ton of sense. But now as we get deeper into it, it's a very obvious thing. This work on the digital economy. Folks aren't thinking of the Berkshires as a digital economy landscape right now. There's all these assets here. Why aren't we pulling them together? So we're sinking our teeth into that. That's been something that I certainly feel has brought in. And then with the creative placemaking, obviously, that's been 
deeply ingrained in my past. Great examples. Really appreciate that. We've been interested in creating greater access to arts education and integration through the arts across disciplines. And I'm curious, how do you see the role of arts education and integration of arts playing a role in creative placemaking? That's an interesting question because from the get-go, I've always seen them as being integral to the actual creation of those places. And sometimes it's very much so like just them helping to clean something up or helping to create a piece of art that's going to be in a space, whether it's a, a collective community art piece or it's them having their own art installed. There's actually a good example. There's a bunch of fire boxes that the old fire alarm boxes that used to work back in the day. The whole system got taken down. It wasn't operational. And so we captured some of those old fire boxes, primed them, and then we had the arts class at Drury three years ago now, students got to paint them and then we installed them. So basically they run along this corridor that we wanted to try to draw more foot traffic. And so I think there's 12 or 13 of them that kind of run this course and call it Art on Fire. It's kind of like this fun name that we came up with. But that's the idea there is that it'll be a cycle. So every few years, we'll actually sandblast them. So take off the work because they, over time, they get worn, right? And then have another class of folks or another group of individuals do the next installation. So we're actually coming up on that pretty soon now that I think of it. So I've always seen that as being integral to the actual success of creative placemaking. But I also think when you create a space like that, or you create any environment that is specifically aimed at an injection of creative infrastructure or events or dialogues around a space, making sure that your youth are involved in that after it's produced is core because they're going to be the stewards of what happens next. You don't want it to be like this dead end where it's this generation did all this work and then poof. Right? We've seen what that can do in some communities, right? If you don't engage the youth, they're not going to feel that hook. They're not going to feel that passion, that desire to want to be the continuing stewards or to want to look at a profession that might be relevant to that thing that you've created. I think both of before, during, and then next that it plays into because they're going to be the creative placemakers of the future. They're going to find the holes that we missed, right? And then they're going to be the ones that will be able to fill that in with whatever their minds can come up with. Totally agree. There we see your wordplay at work with Art on Fire and also, I believe you named this podcast studio Potty Mouth Studio. Love it. Got to have fun with things. That's right. That's right. So you have two young kids and talking about the significance of including the arts as part of education for youth. When you think about the rich cultural assets in this county and access to arts and education, what do you hope for your kids? Oh, boy. What do I hope for my kids? I hope to be able to make the time to expose them to as much as humanly possible so that they can figure out what they love. I shouldn't say I hope. I am striving to do that thing. What I hope is that they feel enough authorship to recognize things that they love, not just what they're told to like. Thinking about my daughter, she's not even one year old yet, but she's banging on things like she's been playing drums forever. Her brother had a drum set that he played all the time when she was in utero, so likely she heard it, and maybe that translates, but is that something that she loves? Maybe it is, so how do we expose that as time goes on? With my son, he loves making up stories. He loves telling tales and whatnot, so is that something that we just need to figure out how to nurture that for him, and where do we take him to do that? We observe what they're doing, seeing where maybe they're just inherently drawn to something. I think that's kind of like a Montessori model 
model of thinking sometimes, but looking at how they are interacting with their world and then how do we just offer up additional resources that they can take or not, depending on what they think. But before the pandemic really hit hard, we would bring our son to kids space at Mass Mocha pretty much every weekend during the winter. It was a great indoor space. It was warm. It was well lit. He loved all of the stuff he was seeing. He was always engaging with stuff and discovering things. And I think continuing that inquisitive nature that a child has, but hopefully continuing that as long as possible before you kind of get stuck in a channel that you feel like you've been told to go into. So I think that that's really where I want to see that going forward so that they can succeed however best fits them. Makes a lot of sense. And before we wrap, I just want to go back to uh, when you were talking about those skills that employers are saying that they really want to focus on and also pointing to the idea that through the arts, many of these skills can be focused on and developed. Do you see a, a place in the future where we as a region could intentionally incorporate the arts in that kind of training, whether it be in high schools or career pathways? What would that look like? It's interesting because we sometimes get slammed into these pathways that we have to go by because it's what the state says or it's what the federal government says. Continually, we run up against kind of this wall of where the appreciation line ceases for the creative economy, the creative industries, the creative thinking. And then it's forcefully translated into advanced manufacturing or hospitality and tourism or healthcare. Those are the big three that we tend to get wedged into. And so we try to think of ways that those things can be translated. I sort of mentioned Lymphedivas as being a, a good case study or the employer that was in advanced manufacturing looking for someone with a really keen eye on color. The education piece, yes, like certainly in the trainings, it, it's important. But I actually think it's more with the employers. And so I think that there's an opportunity there yet to be met where employers across industries having some level of translation services isn't the right phrase here, but it kind of is like translation services of how arts apply to them and their industry and their particular business. So if I'm a large employer and I just don't see it, right, because it's not in my line of view. I'm not going to think that my employees also need that training. You kind of have to start at the top and then work with them to figure out, okay, so how could we integrate this into your training? Because if they don't see the value in it, the, the value proposition is going to be lost on potential employees that are really looking for a career path. They're looking for, what's the training I need from point A to get to point B to point C to like improve myself? And if the employer doesn't see this as being integral, they're not going to see it as being integral to them getting that job. It's kind of a flip on what you're asking, but I do think it's needed. But I'm one person. I think that you need the entire employer landscape to be on page in order for that to really play out. I think that is such an astute observation. And I would welcome the opportunity to talk further about that and to see if we could make that actionable. Thank you so much for joining us on Thinking Like a Region. This was great. Thanks, Ben. Thinking Like a Region is a production of the C4 Initiative, Berkshire County's Creative Compact for Collaborative and Collective Impact based at Massachusetts College of Liberal Arts in North Adams and grant-funded by the National Endowment for the Arts. This podcast is produced by Lisa Donovan and Leslie Applegate. The music you're hearing now is by Poddington Bear and at the beginning of the podcast by Purple Planet. For more information about the show or the C4 initiative, visit brainworks.mcla.edu slash c4.